from the State Archives of North Carolina, Connecting the Docs, a podcast connecting archival materials to fascinating true stories from around the Old North State. Welcome back to Connecting the Docs. Today in the studio, I'm joined by archivists Debbie Blake and Chris Meekins as we uncover the story of Frankie Silver through documents in the state archives and contemporary newspaper accounts. Greetings to you all. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're talking about the episode of Frankie Silver, A Woman Hanged. Episode two talks about Frankie going to trial. So in the first episode, we looked at the characters and the crime that were involved more than 200 years ago. This uh, episode talks a little bit about the trial documents. So the grand jury returns a true bill of indictment against only Frankie and not against her mother and brother. Frankie alone goes to trial. And let's talk a little bit about the court practices of the day. Very, very different than they are now. They are. Defendants don't generally testify on their own behalf in those days. And that is very, very different from the way it is today. And also, um, the, keep in mind that the jury is going to be men only, and most of the witnesses are probably going to be men. Those are some pretty stark differences from what we know about trials today. So Frankie could not have testified on her behalf, even if she wanted to. We don't know whether she wanted to or not, or had intended to do that. And certainly not a jury of her peers, because no women would have been allowed to be on the jury. So she goes to trial. She pleads not guilty. But other than that plea, no one hears a word from her. It was a very, very short trial. But we do have a verdict. We do have a verdict. The trial's outcome was recorded in the Superior Court in March 30, 1832. Arraigned on a charge of murder, pleads not guilty. The following jurors were drawn, sworn, and charged to pray between the prisoner and the state on her life, and who, after hearing the evidence, argument of counsel, and the charge of the judge, returned into court and gave the following verdict to wit. We find the prisoner, Francis Silver, guilty of the felony and murder whereof she stands charged in manner and form as charged in the bill of indictment. And that guilty verdict was reached on March the 30th with some deliberation. The trial summary document gives a little bit more detail. The case was one of circumstantial evidence. The witnesses for the state were sworn and separated under the charge of an officer until each one was called into court to be examined. The case was taken up for trial on Thursday morning and occupied the day in the examination of testimony, the argument of counsel, and the charge of the court. The jury having retired from the bar under the charge of the officers about candlelight. The jury was kept together in deliberation during the night and on the next day returned to the bar and was called over. They stated that they had not yet agreed and expressed a wish to have some of the witnesses who had been examined again brought into court that they might be satisfied about their testimony. And I think an important thing to note here is that they evidently talked about this and argued about this all day long because it wasn't until candlelight, the time that they would have started lighting the candles, that they finally came forward and said they were going to retire from the bar. Right, for that night. Thirteen witnesses for the prosecution and three for the defense. That's a lot of testimony all day long. That is. And, you know, it could have been confusing. And, you know, you just want to be in that room and, and with them and say, what's happening? Why are or they? Or have a transcript of that testimony. Uh, yeah. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Yeah. Too, that's an unfortunate. So she's found guilty, even though there is maybe some 
discussion among the jurors. The next document we have here determines her fate, and it's from the Burke County Superior Court. Judgment sentence of the court that the prisoner Frances Silver be taken back to the prison from whence she came and there to remain until the Friday of July court next of Burke County, and then to be taken thence to the place of public execution, and then and there hung by the neck until she be dead. The sentence to be carried into execution by the sheriff of Burke County. So, Frankie, there's no doubt about it. She's scheduled to be hanged in uh, July of 1832. Let's talk about some of the critical documents that we don't have. This is perhaps the pivotal piece that this trial could have uh, could have hung on. Like the coroner's inquest, and that is by far the biggest loss in the documents that we do have at the State Archives related to this trial. The coroner's inquest is what would have been convened right as soon as the body was found. They would have made an examination of it, and they would have made a determination about his cause of death. And so the loss of that document alone is very, very troubling to us, I think. I think it is clear from some of the documents that we do have that at least contemporarily they did have access to the coroner's inquest. I wondered about that. And all the documents that I looked at, many, many people have researched this case over the years and have gone into the archives to look. I couldn't find it anywhere. Chris and I looked the other day for the coroner's inquest. It just doesn't appear. So that Very few coroner's inquests from that county are extant from that time period. That would have been key. But like Debbie says, I think we find clues in other contemporary documents that obviously there was an inquest held, including a petition in which two of the people who sign it state they were on the inquest. But there, I mean, there are other things, just the clues of they wouldn't have had an indictment that could have said this is the cause of murder without having examined the body for a cause of murder. Clearly, they had a cause of death because they mentioned the axe wound. One mortal wound. From which he died instantly. So, And all of that, I think, would have come from the coroner's inquest. So nothing about the body being in parts. You know, I mean, they determined that there was one blow, three inches long, one inch deep, and it was mortal, and it was instantaneous. Which is quite a blow from someone who is described as slight a build as she was. So within a matter of three days, the court convenes, the jury is selected. Frankie is officially indicted, goes to trial, and there there appears to be some disagreement about her guilt. She's found guilty and judgment is pronounced. Frankie's attorney, Thomas Wilson, files an immediate appeal, which is scheduled to be heard by the North Carolina Supreme Court in June, about three months away. Unfortunately for Frankie, when the Supreme Court met in June, it upheld the lower court decision. Thomas Wilson, her attorney, argued Frankie's appeal, claiming those witnesses who had been sequestered before being called back to the jury for follow-up questioning had then been free to talk and discuss the case among themselves overnight. And this was possibly contaminating to the testimony. The court wasn't swayed by this argument. In his ruling, Chief Justice Thomas Ruffin wrote, The separation of witnesses is adopted in aid of the cross-examination as a test of the truth of their testimony by its consistency or inconsistency. It is not founded on the idea of keeping the witnesses from intercourse with each other. That would be a vain attempt. 
the reexamination was solely to satisfy the jury of the testimony already given. The judgment must be affirmed. In upholding the lower court's verdict, the Supreme Court tosses the case back to Burke County Superior Court. And Frankie's sentence and execution date were to be set by that court when it met in the fall of September 1832 under the administration of Judge David L. Swain. But that court didn't meet. Although Frankie showed up for court, Swain didn't. So sentencing was postponed again until the spring of 1833, and the Superior Court would meet then. Frankie avoided death for six more months. So I found out later in a secondary source that Judge Swain had had a accident, a traveling accident of some kind. So that's why he couldn't come. But there's no record anywhere of him sending a message that he wouldn't be there. He just doesn't show up. Wow. While Frankie is waiting to be finally sentenced, I want to talk a little bit about another kind of record that we have in the state archives. And it's not court records, not some of the newspapers, but they are letters and petitions to the governor. Chris, talk a little bit about those, if you would. Governor's Papers is one of our vast collections at the state archives. During this time period, people would write and petition to the governor. Um, I think Debbie had pointed out earlier, a letter is just a letter, but a petition is an actual government function, a document. You're petitioning the government. And who was our governor at that time? Montford Stokes was the governor in 1832. One petition that's really interesting, and it's a petition to Governor Stokes. In this petition, some of the information is revealed. Don't know where it comes from, but in the letter states that, you know, he, he's asking Montford Stokes to please pardon Frankie. And he says, all the evidence is circumstantial, which it was, and Judge Donnell admitted that. He also states that the body was never found. Incredible. Don't know where that yeah. comes from. He also states that when the jury dispersed initially, the vote was nine to three for acquittal. So I don't know where that comes from either, but this is stated in his petition. The petition is signed by several men, including her jailer, John McGuire, and two men who sat on the inquest for the grand jury. So it looks like she might have some support from the men who originally wanted to, her to go to trial. It's an interesting letter. These are probably very important people as well, being a jailer. The inquest jurors, too, are probably important men in the community, and they're suddenly coming out in support of Frankie. And I find that enormously interesting because we don't see that so much anywhere else. That's just what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. This is early because Montford Stokes is still governor, and so there are a few petitions and letters that come to him. We don't have a right. lot that exists. This petition... I thought was particularly interesting because it, it has facts that I don't know where they come from. Right. And from the very clinical, clean court documents that we had seen, the indictment and those things that were very to the point and to the matter, we're starting to see a turn in opinion, it seems like, from the horrible outrage where she was convicted already in the story to the court documents, very neutral trying to lead up to a conviction to now these letters and petitions that are saying, hey, we, you know, we think she might deserve some clemency here. And when you start having these important people 
prominent men in the in the right. county change their opinion. And inquest jurors as well. They would have held a coroner's inquest on the body. So, you know, they would have been part of that. So they must have seen what we can't get at because we don't have a coroner's inquest. I think, too, what we're starting to see creep in here is emotion. There are emotions starting to come into the very clinical documents that we have that have just said it was a mortal blow, that was one, very clinical. Now we're starting to see some emotion and some humanity, I think, starting to come out in some of these documents. And that particular petition is not the only one that's coming to the governor either. There are others coming to him. And one thing we ought to point out, too, I think, is that Governor Montford Stokes had a reputation for being, maybe the word is not lenient, but he was he was very good about pardoning people and offering clemency. Even for murder, right? That's right. And also for women. There are examples in his papers of when he did actually pardon other women for crimes. It's not unheard of. He seemed to be a very kind man when it came to this kind of thing. But not for Frankie. There's a, a letter actually also from his son who was an attorney, and he writes on behalf of someone but also states that he believes Frankie should be pardoned. And a few of the other letters and petitions come from men who served on her superior court trial. So not only the folks who served on the inquest to indict her during the trial as well, they signed a petition. I believe the jailer is, signs a couple of different petitions. He does. Um, the clerk of court signs a petition. All the powerful men are starting to realign themselves. They certainly are. And by this time, of course, Frankie's been jailed for well over a year and she's been separated from her daughter, which has got to be excruciating for her and probably for the little girl as well. She's separated from her parents, from her siblings and any friends that she might have. So she is very much alone in this jail, which is close to the courthouse. But it was a very old wooden structure. And within a year or two, it was actually replaced. So you have to believe it was probably not in the best of shape when she was there. And if people came to visit, if they, I mean, if they came from her community, it would have been over 50 miles to travel to see her. It would have been. So it would have been a major event for them to come and to bring her child to see her. Judge Swain at this point had still not set a date for her execution because during this time, Montford Stokes has gone out of the governorship and David L. Swain, who had been the judge, is now suddenly the governor. And so the next meeting of Burke County Superior Court is supposed to be held in March of 1833. And that's when they would have said her execution date. That's right. And what we have on that comes from the North Carolina Star out of Raleigh with a date of April 26, 1833. At the late term of the Superior Court for Burke County, Judge Sewell presiding, the sentence of death was passed on Mrs. Frances Silvers for the murder and burning of her husband about 15 months since. She had appealed to the Supreme Court, where judgment of the Superior Court was affirmed. She was sentenced to be hung on the 28th of June. So by May of 1833, Frankie had been jailed for nearly a year and a half. She'd been sentenced, found guilty. All her appeals were exhausted, and her execution date had been set. But some of those plans turn around because something happens. Jailbreak. If you can't be pardoned by the governor or found not guilty, 
you're left with little or no options. And Debbie had already told us that the jail was in seriously bad disrepair. And so I guess she took advantage of both time and environment and made her way to freedom. There's a piece in the Charlotte Journal from June 1st of 1833, and it says, $50 reward, broke jail. The subscriber offers a reward of $50 for the apprehension and delivery to him in Morganton, North Carolina, of a woman named Frances Silver, who has been lately convicted of murder and burning her husband and sentenced to be executed on the 28th day of June next. She made her escape on Monday night, the 13th, by the assistance of some person or persons who entered the jail by one of the basement story windows and opened the doors leading to the prisoner's apartment by the aid of false keys. The said Francis Silver is about 20 years of age, rather below the ordinary stature. And this goes into the description we said earlier. We heard earlier. And it says, uh, she has a good and regular set of teeth, so well as can be recollected. The subscriber has good reasons to think that she will cut off her hair and disguise herself in man's apparel in order to make her escape. And it's signed by John McGuire, jailer. So this again brings in some evidence that we don't have about that she burned her husband. And so they reiterate that, you know, here she broke jail. She's a felon. Go get her. Not only the felon, I mean, the court convicted her on that murder and burning the body of her husband. Well, she was convicted of killing her husband, yeah, the not of burning. Well, no, I mean, it says here, that's what it says, considered convicted of murder and burning her husband. So it's odd that that's the statement that the jailer uses. He's an official of the government. But it's interesting that we still have this thing about, is there a body? Isn't there a body? Now here's the body, albeit burnt, coming to the fore again. So she is out for eight days. But then we have more news of Frankie. Felon apprehended from the Carolina Watchmen of June 1st, 1833. She is at large. And when she's captured, I find interestingly enough, she is disguised, had cut her hair short, and is wearing men's clothing, just as the jailer thought she might be. Can you read the piece in the, uh, the Carolina Watchman that describes them picking her up? We learned that Mrs. Frances Silvers, whom we advertised last week as having escaped from Burke Jail a few days ago, was apprehended on Wednesday last on the Sandy Run in the southeastern part of this county and has been taken back to jail. She was accompanying her uncle, a resident in Anson County, who had been for a short time engaged in peddling wares in Burke. She was dressed in man's apparel and had cut her hair short. We learned that her father and uncle had both been committed to jail as accessories to her escape. Frankie's back in jail. She's back in jail. She's in there um, after being free for eight days. I just want to say, go, Frankie, go. <laughs> you just wonder, in, in those eight days, did she get to see her kid at all? Yeah. You know, probably didn't make it that far. Yeah, probably not. They were in the lower part of the county, southeastern part of the county. But yeah, who knows? She, she probably didn't have time to do that. Well, I think that would be one of the first places they'd look for, too. We don't know. I would assume he had a peddler's wagon if he was peddling. She couldn't be running loose as a woman because that really would look odd. Because so she had to cut her hair. Yeah. So she, men were able to go wander about at will and do what they wanted to do, but not so much women. And so it would behoove her. And it would be no wonder that they would think she would disguise herself as a man because she needs to be able to blend. a very 
curious document showing up that we want to talk about. Thomas Wilson, who's Frankie's attorney, petitions Governor Swain on June 3rd of 1833. And in that petition, he says that Frankie confessed to him. And this is the first we hear of any kind of confession from Frankie herself. The only print reference that we've seen so far of Frankie confessing to him. I'll read this because this is quite important. The evidence against your petitioner was entirely circumstantial. No one knows but your petitioner the circumstances and the truth of the facts under which the act was committed. Being a woman and entirely ignorant of the laws of the country, she felt a repugnance to making any confession from a fear of involving herself in still greater difficulties until the decision of the Supreme Court confirming the decision of the Superior Court of Burke and until sentence of death was a second time passed upon her and the day of execution appointed, she had hopes that her life would be spared. Nor were her hopes then entirely extinguished. Escape was then her only hope, and that she effected. By what means, she will never disclose. She was retaken and again incarcerated. From that moment, she lost all hope. Under the impending responsibility of passing from time into eternity, she made a free and full disclosure of all the facts and circumstances attending to this unhappy occurrence. So that's pretty drastic. We never heard that she confessed to anything. And now her attorney is writing to the governor, petitioning him because he says, She's made a confession. That's right. And so now her attorney is left with pretty much one option, and that is to ask for clemency in this particular case. So he does that There's to, another commi- to the, to a, the a governor. Right. That's right. And this one is June 12th. On her return to jail, she became hopeless, sent for some of her acquaintances, and made a confession of the whole facts as they occurred, as is believed by many. From the circumstances of the case, both Hellman Gaithers and myself was asked then to sign a petition for her, but we preferred to see her ourselves. From a rigid examination and cross-examination, we were all of the opinion that it was clearly a case of manslaughter, if not justifiable homicide. This was always my opinion from the circumstances proved and the facts attending the case. I am confident if the facts could have been proved as they really were, that it would have amounted to no more than manslaughter, if not justifiable homicide. And we'll look at some of the curious documents in the next and last episode of Frankie Silver, A Woman Hanged. That's our story for this week. Connecting the Docs podcast is created by staff members at the State Archives of North Carolina. Debbie Blake, Ellen Brooks, Andrea Gabriel, Donna Kelly, Randa McRae, Chris Meekins, and our superb engineer, Tom Normanly. For a look at the documents we discussed in this story, visit our History for All the People blog at ncarchives.wordpress.com and click on Connecting the Docs podcast. Thanks for listening.